0: Welcome back to the Todd Duncan Podcast, a member of the industry syndicate. This is where success happens. Todd's goal is to transform your business and life through deeper connections, higher trust, and proven strategies to help you win and give you your best life ever. Here's your host, Todd Duncan. Hey, it's Todd Duncan. Welcome back to the Where Success Happens podcast. As you know, each time we do one of these podcasts, we have one simple goal, and that is to equip you with skills that will help you in life in business, do your potential, do your best work, enjoy the process, and really learn how to tap into your potential and what really can be valuable for you. We talk a lot about um, strategy and ideas on how to move forward. We talk about a lot of things that people have to deal with each and every day to really find their lane, find their purpose, find their north, North Star, things like that. Today's episode is on one single word, and the word is called struggle. And I'm fascinated with this word because I just got off a UK podcast, and the podcast host wanted to do the entire time on failure. And it was really interesting because a lot of people run from failure. They don't embrace failure. They don't see failure as is something positive. I think failure and struggle are tightly related to each other that, you know, if you are wanting to go forward in life in business, and business and, and be your best version of you, it's not easy. Uh, we have gravity pushing in. We have negativity pushing in. We have, you know, a, a world that's sometimes feels like it's in disarray pushing in and yet each of us individually can go through whatever struggle we have and I believe come out on the other end better. I first learned of a powerful metaphor on this idea of struggle when I was studying a botanist from the 1800s, his name is Alfred Wallace. And Alfred Wallace was a botanist specializing in the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. And he began looking at each of the stages of a chrysalis. And then when the caterpillar began to shed and then when all of that consumed and uh, the, the new chrysalis was built, and then he would in each of the eight stages of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, he would try to accelerate the birth rate of the butterfly, the transformation. So he would start very early on and he would cut the chrysalis open on the second stage and the caterpillar would die. And, and then he would cut it open the third stage and the caterpillar would, would die. And the, the way that he mapped it out was the further back to the first beginning of the transformation where he tried to eliminate the struggle of going from caterpillar to butterfly, um, the mortality rate would be much higher. And by the time we got all the way over to the eighth stage, it was very apparent that unless the, the caterpillar goes through the transformation to a butterfly and unless the butterfly spends the energy and muscle to work to breaking that final membrane so that they can come out of that membrane and fly, was the only way to have a high survival rate versus a high mortality rate. And I think it's a great metaphor. The metaphor is the the, the, the more struggle we have in life, um, the more muscle we can create on how to go through that struggle. It's very, very hard to expedite the results of a struggle because mostly those struggles are organic and, uh, and they're internal, right? And so we have a beautiful time today with uh, somebody I've had the chance to get to know over the last couple of months. Her name is MJ. Um, she's got a very powerful book out called Gracie Rising. It's the autobiography of Gracie J. And it's um, really, really powerful because there's been a lot of struggle in MJ's life on her journey to become who she is today. So we get to hang out with her for 30 to 40 minutes and <clears throat> have some really good dialogue so mj welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for uh joining us and and thank you for your book i found it fascinating it was a it's a simple read it's a page turner and uh and everything seemed to be um kind of this journey and each thing would lead up to something and your desire to kind of clarify and find things out and 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 looking at stuff that happened early in your life and and all that goes along with that um i think this is going to be a phenomenal conversation i had a chance to watch you live a week ago with one of uh, our mutual friends and clients and uh i want to thank sam royer because i wouldn't know who mj is without (laughs) sam royer so sam thanks very much for the uh the referral to mj so welcome and um what would you like to say in the first two or three minutes about who is mj and why this book
1: Hey, uh, thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks to everyone who supported me to get here to this point. I think the, the biggest thing to say is just when it comes to writing this book and the point of it is not to make money or to you know walk around saying, I wrote a book. Um, it's it's crazy. It took me a long time to write this book. That was a lot of therapy for me, a very big uh, movement for me to get all my words down and feelings down on paper. But the point of it is to show people uh, and of all different ages, uh, whether you're an adult, you're a child, you're a teenager. Sure. Um, that you can take struggles and turn them into something good. And just because you go through that struggle doesn't mean you have to go through the stereotype of what comes out of someone who goes through a particular uh, incident in their life. And the biggest thing is to just give hope. A lot of times we hear about uh, people going through struggles and, and the bad outcomes. And, um, you know, I still struggle and I'm very open about my mental illness, which is my depression. Um, I'm very open with it now, especially in today's environment changing with social media. And, um, I, I'm in law enforcement. So so I, I have a lot of struggles with mental illness on that side of the house, and it, it's not addressed as well as it should be in our society. Um, but the biggest messages I have is just giving people hope and showing people that you can work through these struggles. And it's the way you deal with them. It's the ad- adversity you have to overcome. It's, it's seeing that deep inside. You got to look inside yourself and find it. It, it takes a lot. And sometimes it's the support systems that you have may not be your traditional support systems. It's not always your family. It's not always the person who you think is, is going to be the best person to give you the tools you need. It's You're going to find and morph that support system to build you into the person you want to be, but you have to find that drive inside to do it. Um, so that's kind of why I, I wrote the book is I got a lot of people I've talked to throughout the years before I wrote it. And it was helping so many people that I just felt like, why not like share the story and see if it helps other people
0: yeah um, I wrote a couple of things down as you said that, and I think it's um it, it would be interesting to to maybe go down this path. It's like what I heard you say right now is oftentimes the struggle is something that um we have to go through, right? And just like the the butterfly, you know going through that struggle, um, it would not be at the end its full best version of itself. Uh, If it didn't go through the struggle and, you know, some of the struggles are more painful than others. And and I think in some cases, some of the struggles are avoidable as long as we learn along the way and 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 make sure we get decisive about not repeating whatever might lead to a, a struggle. But the thing I wrote down is we we have an option of not only going through a struggle, but we have an option to grow through a struggle. And so uh, I would love your perspective on maybe how that reconciles with you, because when you become fully visible and transparent and talk about mental illness and depression, um, I think a lot of people identify with that. I know I do. My my youngest son has um, pretty, pretty incredible depression that he's dealing with, having lost his his mom um, at a young age of 11. And, um, and then I look at people that have been in business for 30 years that are struggling because, you know, they, they got to figure out what is my purpose right now, post COVID, what am I, I going to do and this, that, and the other thing. What's your perspective on the difference between grow, going through something and growing through something as it relates to your personal journey?
1: I, I think that's a, that's a great question. Uh, for me, the way that growing and going through, they're two separate kind of worlds for me. To an extent, I think right now as an adult, it's blended a little more. But uh, in my book, I kind of lay out the chronological order of of the events that um, I experienced. And and at the time of going through these struggles, um, I didn't know they were struggles. They were just life. It's it's what yeah. was handed to me, and you just tackled it one by one. And me as a child going through, you know, abuse and emotional abuse and trauma and loss. Uh, you don't realize what it is, you're just trying to survive. And for me, it was survival at that point when I was a kid and that was the going through part. And it was as I was going through, it was finding the tools to get through it. It might not have always been a positive tool in all honesty. sometimes it was like I'd go down a road and be like, oh, let's turn back, this is not working. Uh, but it was also finding that inner strength again to be like, do I really want to do that? Is that what I want to do? Um, the going part can be tough though. Uh, you have to find the tools along the way and each struggle is going to be different. And every single person has struggles, whether they know it at the time or not. I, I never saw my stuff as a struggle. I always was like, it's what happened. It's the, the dealt the cards I was dealt. Um, but then as an adult when I, I was older and started to kind of have a bigger separation from a lot of the the item, the triggers of family, environment, I removed myself from it and I was able to sit and process it. and that's the growth piece. Um, I had a lot of anger. I had a transition period in my early 20s where I was just angry. I was angry at my mother very much so, I was angry at my brothers. Um, I was angry at being adopted. I was adopted as a kid, I was an orphan in India. I was, I was angry at that whole process, that whole thing, when wow. in reality, I, now it's, hey, if I wasn't ever adopted, I wouldn't be living like what could be, some people say is the American dream in America, um, you know, working my dream job. Um, but it the growth part is a big part. It's how you have to take the struggles or the events, positive or negative, look at them, piece them. I had to go through all of them piece by piece and figure out how they affected me, why they affected me and how I could look at it. And instead of initially I I really, and that's where the depression part came in. I blamed myself for a lot of it. I looked, Mm -hmm. I looked at it the wrong way. I wasn't looking at it as a strength. I was that stigma of mental illness and depression and you're adopted and you know, you don't fit in and you don't look like your parents and you're abused and you are be a drug addict and all these things um, were weighing on me. And then I, I had to change the way I looked at every struggle that I went through and then break it down. Then I looked at a lot of psychology um, and that's the growth that I had to do mentally, emotionally. And then one by one, it was addressing every single struggle whether it was closing the door, open the door, resolving the door, <laughs> um, it was a lot of different healing that I had to do and I'm, I'm still working on it. It's not gonna, it's never gonna be done. Unfortunately, your whole life, if there's either gonna be good struggles, bad struggles, there, there's gonna be different things. It's just how you grow and piece it apart, and then you know decide what what needs to remain to help you be the person you are. And for me, it's talking about it because if I didn't talk about it, I know that I shut down into a little ball and I don't talk to people, and then I'm horribly like sad, and that's not good for me. So I, I talk about it. I realized that it was my best medicine, but it was not always that way. For you know, 15 years, I didn't talk about my story.
0: Yeah, um, I'm sitting here thinking about um, the truth which is you know if you're walking and you're upright and um your heart is beating uh, life will present struggles you know and uh and challenges and i think that you know you brought up early on this idea of hope and um you know the struggle that i have right now as an entrepreneur and and a dad of two young men who you know lost their mom prematurely to cancer um is the struggle of of helping them helping them understand that they have to they have to choose their recovery they have to choose you know life over over um addiction they have to they have to get to a spot where the pain is big enough to cause change and i look at that and um, the last thing on my life plan, you know, I used to be, I, 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 am still a big believer in kind of writing down where you'd like your life to go. But, you know, when I, when I lost a business and, and then uh, lost my wife and then realized that, um, my life plan wasn't working. It was like, I, I, I said to everybody, I said, I would recommend you write your life plan in pencil and, and be prepared to pivot. Because it's not going to turn out the way that you've imagined it, right? And, um, and part of the journey, I think, is this idea of hope. And one of the acronyms that as a, as a parent of, of two addicts is, you know, hope stands for hang on, pain ends. And it is the perseverance of discovery, like you've talked about, and then taking the struggle and deconstructing it and beginning to heal. And my oldest son, who's just today seven months sober, said to me when he decided for the first time in eleven years to get sober, he said, "Um, "Dad, my perspective on on drugs and alcohol it has changed. Everything in my life that has happened that is bad." can be tied to that and I just don't want to uh, have another moment where I get lucky and I get to stay alive instead of die and you know it's just interesting because uh, you have to have hope you have to have kind of faith that you can you can be a survivor right and in the mental health world You know, when you get a text from your son that, you know, he wants to tie rocks around his ankles and jump into the ocean, that that's a really unsettling text. And so I I feel this, this whole conversation rolling around, you know, that 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 the struggle is designed to make us stronger. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger if you have the right perspective. But for you, it was like asking new questions, asking different questions. So take us through the deconstruction of just one of the big struggles and maybe talk a little bit, if you can, about how you have healed and/or are healing from it, and give everybody perspective. Because you're right; everybody watching and listening to our podcast is right now in the midst of some struggle, and probably more than one.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, those are great points that you bring up with the the addiction piece and and having your your life penciled, uh, your life plan in pencil. Um, as much as my dream was to to do the career I have now. It was, the way there went like this. It never went, I wanted it to go this way, but it went like this the whole way. Um, And one of the things, and then I'll I'll get into the answer to your question. One of the things that I think is part of my life plan and and was early on that someone showed me, one of my support systems showed me was, I was offered a lot of medicine to my depression. They they handled, handed the pills to me constantly when I was young. And um, this person in my life just said, no, like you can be happy without it. And I was like, are you nuts? Like, I can't, I can't be happy without it. I'm, I'm spiraling out of control on this mental case. seems depressed and tried to commit suicide. And I think just having one, that person and that support, but also two, just having that plan, like I can be happy without pills. I can be happy without medicine, medicating me every single day yeah. was probably a, a big thing for me. And I'm glad that, you know, that person did that for me. Um, I can't imagine now, especially with the opioid epidemic in the United States and all of the the gateways to the prescription pills, um, I, I'm like, oh, man, like maybe I dodged a bullet. there, not, you know, finding that life path was you're going to this is what you want. And you have to figure out how to get there. Um, but picking apart one of my biggest struggles, there's um, a few, um, I think is probably. And, and it's one I still deal with, but I, I still picked it apart. It took me probably the longest it was my brother, um, my middle brother, who I was closest to when he decided to leave the family. Uh, The situation with that, uh, as readers would read in the book, uh, my mom got really sick. She got leukemia when I was really young. a family got separated, uh, put up into different foster homes for a period of time. And then we um, eventually got back together. My mom made some crazy, miraculous recovery. uh, But the three of us, my two brothers and I, all adopted, all not blood related. Different orphanages had a lot of abandonment issues from you know the start. Um, I think it was hard. We all came back. We were all treated differently at the foster home, and so when we get back into a home that's different with a mother who looks completely different and, and is trying to put our family back together, uh, having my middle brother be in such a vulnerable state of his life um, for me as a nine-year-old perspective, I was nine. Uh, he was my best friend. He was like the closest to me. Uh, we always were cheering each other. He taught me how to play basketball. He taught me to do the drums. He taught me to rollerblade. Uh, I was closest to him in age. My other brother was very introverted, um, a little more reserved with our our brother-sister relationship. Um, and there was, there was some abuse in the family at that time, but it wasn't anywhere to the, where it evolved to. Um, but again, I always had a relationship. And when had that turning point in his life. And from my perspective, it was my fault. He, you know, he, we were at home one day, my mom was gone. My brother, other brother was gone. He came at me, beat the crap out of me, um, tried everything he could to, to kill me. And he told me he did. Um, and he, um, he, my mom came home and we were separated. Police came, we were removed, we were separated from the house, um, was placed in a mental institution. He was evaluated. And then, um, Removed from the family, put into a foster home, uh, official state licensed foster home. Um, never really heard from him again. He popped into my life once. Um, that was the one of the most traumatic events for me because it was someone I loved, and he, he was my protector. Um, and then the after effect of that, that it caused, and where I had to, you know, this is me as nine, watching my mom go from a very outgoing teacher who's well loved and was always super hyper with us and always wanted to do everything for us and put her family first because that's who she was. And that's what she taught us to do. And she's a single parent raising three little Indians is the joke I make, but she's an amazing (laughs) human and she she still is. Um, But she fell into a depression and the depression as a me, as a little girl with my mom, just not being around going through me, going through growth and puberty and all that stuff and not having a mom to support me because she was so Mm. depressed watching not knowing where her son was and having parental ties eventually cut legally. Um, that hurt me because then my other brother, and this is all tied to the same struggle of leaving. Um, my mom disappears into her depression um, and isn't really there. She shows up, she gave us a roof. She um, you know, made sure we had clothes, but she wasn't emotionally there. She wasn't, I love you. She wasn't celebrate holidays. Let's do birthdays. Um, she was just gone. And, and my oldest brother was He was dealing with his own struggles. He doesn't have a dad as a role model. He's been bullied. He's darker skinned than I am. He had some problems with race. Um, I think he felt like he needed to be a father role, but he didn't know how to do it. Uh, He had gone through abuse from um, our grandfather. So his method was emotional abuse and physical abuse to me. Uh, I just remember a nine-year-old kid being terrified to go home. So I stayed at school all the time or I just athletics or always had friends around. And just being scared at night, I I have this habit. I still have it. I have to lock my bedroom door at night. I cannot sleep without my bedroom door locked. It's a, it's just a habit from when I was a kid, and I still to this day do it. I can't literally go to bed without doing it. Um, And so as a kid, that's what I viewed. It was, it was, um, it was loss of someone I loved so much, and then watching him turn on me. And and now as an adult, right? So I picked it apart. The first step before I get to the adult version of it is like. When I was a kid, I didn't know what to do with it. I just was like told that it left because of me. It was my fault. I ran away and it's all my fault and you're never going to amount to anything. And it was constant over and over for years. Um, and I believed it. So my depression spiraled. I mean, I thought I was the reason for every part of my mm-hmm. family not loving me and and not. And that's why I was adopted and all these other you know, issues that came about from it. Um, and then when I got older and I was in my 20s and I separated from my family because of the severe depression and abuse, um, it was trying to look at the perspective of what each of us went through, what went through, what went through and what my mom was going through when we were in that that era of my mom getting out of the hospital and us coming back into the household. So it took me probably a good two years to pick apart, okay, how was feeling when he came back into the situation? How was feeling and how was my mom feeling? And And what effects did each of our actions have on each other and then how it interacted all together? So it was a lot of breaking down of of that. Um, And I was able to break it down and and say, you know, all of us dealt with it the best way we could. Like I was the youngest. So I really just thought like, this is life and and this is how families work. And um, that was my view of reality. Um, And as an adult, the changes have been, you know, now both my brothers, um, one of them, the oldest, is doing better. He's going to get the help he needs. He's trying to come back into my life. He's tr- starting to do the stuff I did twenty when I was twenty-three, and he's processing all the trauma from the family. And he wants to be there. And it, it's it's overwhelming for me because I put very big distance and and space. And I've always said, you know, I want the best for them, uh, for all of my family, even though I don't feel as connected to them. Um, and the other part with the other brother is he's come back recently. In the last couple of months, actually, since I've met Sam Royer on the bike tour. Um, And he's come to me and said, his perspective is, you had a great life, MJ, and I did nothing wrong, and you lived the best. And it's so interesting to hear the arguments him and I, and they're not arguments like yelling, they're me saying, you you don't know what happened. And um, now it's as an adult, it's fighting. It's fighting like the relationship I want to have with my brothers and my mom, but also keeping my depression in check and making sure I don't fall into that hole again, where I'm feeling like everything's my fault because yeah. I still have really date back. Holidays are the worst. I don't holidays. I, I don't like them. I, I want to like them. And I love being around people. It keeps me like going, but, um, not celebrating holidays your whole life. You just, you, you wow. just feel like you always never had a family. You never had a family mm-hmm. to go home to on the holidays and. But yeah, that's kind of how I picked apart it. It was it was having to look at every single person in that situation when that event of my brother leaving, and then how it affected our whole family for the rest of our life. I mean, it affected all. And then it not to say it justified, but it explained from a psychological standpoint, at least to me, why my mom acted the way she did, why my other brother acted the way he did, why I you know, just played sports. And, and how I deal with it now is I, I literally I talk about it. And I played a lot of sports, I just put all my energy into to just being outside and doing stuff that kept me in an environment that was really positive. Uh, because I just the feeling of being home was it was it was so detrimental. And, and that was just I think a lot of that had to do with college and reading about psychology and the effects of alcohol. And I didn't drink till I was like older in college and people thought I was nuts. But I, I learned early on depression and, and alcohol is a depressant. So I tried to avoid it um, where I could because I could see me myself spiraling. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are that's kind of how I broke that one event down. It kind of ties to a lot of other stuff, but this is the best I can do.
0: It's no, it's like I I wrote down uh, a couple things that I that I that really resonated with me. One is the idea that when you use the word perspective, um, one of the things that I think works for people actually, it's a couple things and and they're just little phrases like, um, the perspective that we should try to have as we um kind of manufacture and plan our journey in life is looking at these moments right that you describe and these moments that um are painful and and uh and and that we begin to realize are not healthy and when we when we look at um the balancing act of struggle strength um the muscle that's built through struggle can give you strength but the perspective is uh, a struggle is, is oftentimes kind of a breakdown, right? And it can be repeated day after day or it can go on for a decade or more. But a breakdown um, in, in whatever you're identifying with is also simultaneously a chance for a breakthrough. And, and when we begin to look at um, the sheer psychology of this topic that you and i are expressing and exploring together um attitude and and positivity are good but healing is probably the best best way to grow through the struggle and um you know i i grew up with a mother that was very um very perfectionist oriented and and I was the first son. And so it was just placed upon me from an early age that I had to do things perfectly. And and whenever I did not, um, I felt it. You know, I got physically abused with uh, slaps and and rings in my mouth and split lips and, you know, things like that. And, and uh, I remember when I was 15, um, I failed a summer qualification program to be on a, a crew up in the mountains. And she had to drive two hours to pick me up. And for two hours going home, I heard nothing other than what a big failure I was, right? And then I would get on the swim team and I couldn't finish a race and I was a big failure and and then this and I was a big failure and this. And so I kind of grew up just with like uh, um, a sense of maybe worthlessness because I had been messaged my whole life from my, my mother that I was a failure. And my father's failure was just that he was passive. He was a great dad, but he, he did not interact and, and kind of step in, which I think could have been helpful. But it's really interesting, MJ, because um, when I got into business, I think my motive for wanting to succeed started with proving my mother wrong. And and that's a way to use the the, the setback as a setup uh, or the breakdown as a breakthrough. But then I began exploring that, okay, when that's over, when I now am a success and, and by my definition have done it for the right reasons the right way, it's still not the solution to a mother who I'm going to be connected to for the rest of my life and her perfectionism. And I remember, you know, as, as the boys um, got, got, you know, into their, their addiction and as we got them treatment and as we, you know, watched them go into sober living and things like that, um, I didn't really understand the power of boundaries. I didn't understand the power of putting fences up between what can cause depression, um, what can cause um, codependency, what can cause a uh, meshment and things like that that are all part of, you know, program and, and understanding that. But I started to reflect on, you know what, I'm I'm a grown man. And my mother still tries to control me. And so I learned boundaries. And it was like five years ago um, before she before she started kind of declining. We were at a family Thanksgiving. And I really empathize with you on uh, holidays, you know, and, and uh, I'm grateful for holidays. But it was interesting. My, uh, I, I went to cut the pie. And I'm probably, I don't know, 40, 49 years old. And my mother says to me, you're cutting the pie the wrong way. And and <laughs> the old me would have been, well, how do you want me to cut it, mom? Blah, 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 blah. The new me with boundaries is I handed her the knife and I said, go ahead and cut it the way you'd like to cut it. And it was so powerful that I could just put that kind of out there. And then just two months ago, so she's 90, bless her heart, <laughs> she's in the, back of, in the back of my Range Rover, my wife and I are in the front and we're taking her back to um, the, uh, the senior living home that she lives in. And she, from the back seat, age 90 says, you're going the wrong way. And I don't know if that was part of her dementia or if it was her trying to control me. And I said, I said, mom, there's about four ways to get to your place. And I'm going this way. And it was just like in the old days I go, which way do you want me to turn mom? And it was just <laughs> like, you know, so, so I think all of us, uh, uh, have to understand that, that we can actually put boundaries up that, help us heal from whatever the struggle is. And to your point too, this is a this is a um a life, right? It's a life of of healing in many cases some deep wounds and I think what also comes along with the depression piece and maybe the the abandonment piece and the for me being a failure piece is is the idea of shame and guilt and and how do you work through that so that you don't even spiral more out of control? What well, what have you done to heal whatever shame or guilt that has been put on you um, or that you've accepted, because I find that that's another place that if we can forgive ourselves and heal and, and understand that uh, we're never going to be perfect um, and it's not our issue as much as it is somebody else's, how do we, like I'm really proud of what I've done now. I think the old me was like, I was really guilty of being a failure but I'm really proud that, you know, we've been able to be in the place we're in and, and impact the world. And, and I'm still fighting struggles just like you are, but how did you deal with shame and guilt?
1: Yeah, shame and guilt is, is the hard one. Um, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. It's, it's not easy. That's probably one of the, the biggest roots of my depression still is, uh, and, and, you know, it kind of poked his head with a conversation with my brother where he said, you know, you don't take care of mom. And I'm like, I commuted three hours one way for, you know, years taking care of her into New York City. And I was the only one there. My brothers who lived in Connecticut never were there. And he was trying to guilt trip me and shame me into, I I don't do enough. And I'm like, I think I've done enough. And I had to put boundaries up because my mental health was suffering um, at that time. But I think uh, dealing with the shame and guilt is still a process. I have not figured it out. Um, completely. Uh, Part of it is the boundaries. It's a big part of it Um, from the things that make me feel that shame and guilt. The other part, um, breaking down, again, the things and the people or the events um, or the situations that could potentially invoke those feelings. Um, A lot of that is breaking down the psychology of what can I control and what can't. What is genuinely my fault if there is a... I don't even like the word fault, Um, but do I have control over whatever is making me feel that way is that really me or is that really someone else just putting their their trauma or their baggage or whatever it is on me. Uh, so that's that's part of it. Um, therapy is another that's how I deal with it. I I had to force myself to get back into therapy as an adult, talk about things and also kind of embracing the pe- the things I can't that I don't know if I would say our our shame and guilt that I feel. I mean it is. I still feel really big guilt with my brothers and my mom and and not being home um, and being closer to them. I I stay on the East coast and they all live in the North. um, And up to me, that's, I can drive home if they need me, but I have enough boundaries for me to be the person I want to be. Um, But I, I also think part of it is just embracing the out of the struggles and the things I've been through, it's embracing who I am. And I eventually had to stop hiding the mental illness and i don't even like the word mental illness it like, yeah, bothers yeah. me I, I probably just hide the fact that i have depression i did it a lot and then um it just got to the point especially with covid because it was such a big topic and i i watched colleagues um you know lose their lives because of they they were struggling with it and it wasn't coming out and people were hiding in and, and burying and, and sky the service dog which you saw at churchill um sky is my best friend she's sleeping over there. I can't (laughs) grab her. But she is um, a a PTSD service dog that wears a a little Velcro patch on her vest that says PTSD service dog. And I bring her to work and I bring her everywhere. And I think it's an unexpected thing where I've always said the biases I hate when people come up to me and they're like, oh, and, and I work for the FBI. I'm an FBI agent, dream job. People are like, oh, you're an FBI agent. You probably got here so easy. And I'm like, (laughs) I mean, no, but it's that, Hey, that was the outward appearance. And that's the assumption by someone made. Um, But that shame and guilt I carry with me that people don't even realize I have. I mean, um, I think some of it is, is controlling in a way that shame and guilt sometimes is I can go into my dark spiral of a hole and I have to learn how to control my actions, carrying a weapon in law enforcement and having the struggle. And uh, like sky is like the best, check for me because I always think of it as sky depends on me. And if I don't wake up tomorrow, dog's not going to have a mom. And it sounds kind of rudimentary, but to me, that is one of the ways I deal with the depression and the shame and guilt. I just am trying my best to work through it like piece by piece and say, okay, how I I've, I've put the barriers up from the things that caused me to feel the shame and guilt. And when I do feel it, how do I, how do I mitigate it the best I can? I, I don't think there's an answer on how to get rid of it. I think innately, people are always gonna feel it. But I think speaking about it, talking about it, using parts of it to help and also just owning it. Like, yep, I do feel shame. I feel, I hate knowing my, I was abandoned by someone in India and I'm never gonna know if it was because they truly love me or because they just didn't give a crap about me. I yeah. feel guilt for not being around my mom as much. I feel guilt for being mad at her sometimes because she treated me so poorly cause she's focused on other things. Um, but it's, it's just about perspective and just trying to, again, turn around and look at things differently and then put things in my life that make that minimize that shame and guilt feeling. And, and people, I mean, people who can say to me, I have a lot of people who put me in check, they're like, MJ, you're not, I, I will talk open and they're like, you're not that person, MJ, you've never been that person. And that, I, I still don't believe it. I have a hard time taking compliments. I'm really bad at it. Um, I at work, my the people I supervise are always like, "You're a great boss and a great leader," and it's because you're not afraid to tell people when they're hurting people and being wrong. Um, But it's it's also just putting those things that in my life that have made me feel worth, and because I I did not feel worth pretty much most of my life, and just seeing Mm -hmm. Sky come when I come home smiling with her doofy little face is like, (laughs) "Hey, I had a bad day, but that dog loves me, and that's awesome." Um, So yeah, that's a very long answer
0: for you. No, but it's, it's super powerful because I think at the end of the day, um, we have a chance to, uh, at least for me and and maybe for you, um, I think when you can get authentic and vulnerable at the same time, that begins to free you, right? And it's like when, when my son said, you know what, dad, Everything in my life that has happened that is bad is tied to, to drugs and alcohol. He felt free in that moment because he finally didn't have to fake it. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to cancel a meeting with me because I would, you know, he would be hung over or anything like that. It was like it was like. I own it and, and I'm going to free myself of this burden. And it changed, it changed everything. And it didn't happen. Like he woke up on a Friday and said, uh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to own this and I'm going to disclose that I have a, a problem with drugs and alcohol. That's not easy for anybody to do, but as soon as you do it, it, it like creates freedom for you, at least a little bit of less heaviness. And then it clears the space to grow. And it clears the space to identify with others. And now he's got people just in his seventh month of sobriety. He's got people that, you know, are asking him, can you help me? You know, I know that you've gone through this. Can you help me? And I think that's part of why I want this podcast is can we help thousands of people understand that there is a way and you can get help and you can heal. And your book is a therapeutic journey on how to heal and and the story and 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 what you went through and um you know when somebody when somebody puts their hand up and says that's me i i i can benefit by hearing mj talk about her recovery so to speak and and getting strong and healing and i think too many people carry a big burden of of, of shame and they don't realize that the pathway to freedom is to share what you're shameful about like you know, I'm shameful that I yelled at you yesterday, son, you know, but I want you to know, I apologize and I want you to forgive me. And I want to do my best to not talk that way to you anymore, whether I was triggered or not, you know, it's just like, okay. So, and it's not being apologetic. It's just, I care and I want you to care. And I want you to understand that I care. And, you know, and it's just, it's a behavior, I think, worth modeling, I guess. And, um, so, if you're watching this, we're with MJ. She's the author of a beautiful book called Gracie Rising. You can get it on Amazon. It is a beautiful read. If any of what we've talked about so far strikes a chord in you, uh, get this book today. Go to Amazon, order it, get it tomorrow, and read it this weekend or read it tomorrow. Spend two hours going through it. It's a uh, it's a blueprint for a journey uh, of healing. So, I want to ask a question. Since you brought up law enforcement, um, is there a is there a As somebody who admittedly has her own level of kind of depression and and managing it, um, is there a level of, gosh, this might be a paradox, but is there a level of empathy or some variation of that when you see in law enforcement people that you have to encounter that maybe have depression and mental illness? Is there some relationship there? Uh, because you, you have, you have and are going through it when you see others that in, in your field have a mental illness, what does that do to you or what does that do for them?
1: I mean, throughout, whether it's in the job or outside the job, but in the job right now, I mean, there's this year alone, I think this year I reached out to, um, one of the higher ups in my, my uh, organization in the FBI, um, to talk about it a little more freely, because seeing, I have had a lot of people that I've been able to identify it on, and I, I know what it's like to have someone approaching. It's not about making someone uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. More so, it was, it was when the book came out, I didn't really tell anyone in the, in the office. I kept it really quiet because of the stigma of law enforcement. And then people started to find out, a couple of my close friends, and then go around the office. And then, you know, people were like, oh, Jill MJ wrote a book. And a lot of people thought it was about the Bureau. And I'm like, no, it's not about the Bureau. It's about why I wanted to be in the FBI. It's why I wanted to be an agent and what drove me to be, um, you know, who I am. Um, And I think the book alone opened up people to come and talk to me. Um, It was very discreet at first and, and still is. There are some people who have just come to me and, uh, said it. and then there's been times where I, I know I've never called them out on it. I'm not gonna sit there and di- I'm not a therapist. I'm not gonna diagnose someone, but I do have a huge empathy when I see people going through stuff. And and working in New York during COVID, um, at the heart of it was was horrible. I mean, we all had financial struggles. We had a shutdown. You know, prior to that, where we re- weren't getting paid for a while, um, and the mental illness struggle was real all around us. Whether it was just kids, people with. Maybe minimal struggles in comparison, which I don't even like comparing struggles. But uh, but then all of a sudden they can't pay their childcare and they're trying to figure out how their kid's going to go to childcare during COVID. Um, but I think I have a huge empathy, not only just at the federal level, but we work with state and local partners. And you know we've had uh, people that have taken their lives, um, and a lot of it's been um, when we've actually lost the life of someone. Um, people coming to me and asking me how, how is that possible? i I don't understand, you know, suicide stuff and you've been through it and you felt it. Um, and it's been, that was kind of one of the first experiences I probably had after the book came out because people knew I'd been through suicide because I'd never talked about it. Um, was, was explaining like, it was always a high performer. There was like, so you would have never known that person was depressed and you would, and I said, would you ever have known that about me? And they're like, no. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay. And so we don't tell people we we just we love whatever we're doing, probably. And that's what keeps us going. And then something triggered them. Um, and so I think I do empathize a lot. I try my best to to help where I can, where I feel appropriate. And a lot of it's just relating and giving them a door to open. Because I think, right. especially with the men in my field, um, they're not going to go to their bro and be like, hey, bud, like, I feel really sad today. Um, yeah. So sometimes it's it's calling them out in a, a subtle way where, you know, my tattoo, the book goes through all my tattoos. So sometimes it's just me talking about a tattoo or two, and it piques their interest. And then I tell them about it. And I met a guy who was down here for training. He's he's in New York. And, him and I just worked a couple bombings together in the city. And he was down and the book came up and we were talking and then he just opened about his life. And I was just like, OK, let's talk. And I, I don't mind because it helps me talk about my story, but giving him tools to help him. So I think it's there and I notice it. And when I see it, I try my best to open the door to say, hey, I know what you're feeling, but without saying, hey, I know your secret, because that's just like it's it's not the most comfortable thing. Um, but I do. I, I think I actually I don't think I knowingly look for it. Um, I just the way I think I combat it is I try to just be I try to be good. And and um, one of our former directors always said, just do good and be good. And that's kind of one of my things. I'm always like, gosh, just be good. Just do nice things and be a good person because my other thing is I would get bullied all the time when I was in, from a kid up into my career, I've had females in my organization bully me and, um, mm. it always shocked me because I'm like, you have no idea what that person is going through. So I always right. tell people, like, before you be a jerk to someone, just like, you don't know if what you're doing could be the one <laughs> thing that tips them over the edge <laughs> that day. Like, you don't know. Um, so I always try to be nice to people. And when I notice, like, hmm, I can't get this person to laugh today. it. That's really weird. I hope they're okay. Or, you know, bringing Sky in um, to, to work as a service dog has been great. I've had some people come up to me and say, you know, MJ and not so many words, like I needed that today. And I'm like, cool, I'll bring it every day. That helps you, got you. Um, and that's been my push is just, I don't, I don't hide it. Now the book is sitting on my desk. If someone asks, I'll tell them because maybe they're asking because they've heard about it, but they can't approach me. Uh, but yeah, I think I probably empathize a ton. Um, I try to use it. It helps me get through my day. And I also have really supportive leadership, which is important. Um, I've been supporting leadership that I go to the openly and I say, hey, I gotta be home today because there's stuff going on and they're like okay MJ we got it and they don't think I'm going to go run around they just if I'm saying I need a mental health break they get it um so
0: yeah, yeah. yeah i mean super cool um i your instagram ham, handle is orphan inked and uh you guys can uh, go to instagram and uh and and follow mj at orphan inked orphan inked um Can I ask you to tell us one story about one piece of ink and uh, tell us kind of your, because I'm fascinated by how you even got started (laughs) and it's beautiful, but show us one and tell us the story.
1: Yeah. um, Let's see. I don't know. There's so many. We'll go with, we'll do this one. So this one okay. right here is my orphanage gate. So it's like the bars and then across the top is some lettering and on the bottom there's a date. So that one was one of my like early on tattoos. Um, I actually, so my mom, like I said, single parent, she, uh, never told me I was an orphan. I didn't know until I was 29 years old that I was an orphan. Um, I was, Oh, I always go as adopted. Wow. My mom's an Italian woman with women wooden spoons on her wall. Like she's, she's <laughs> Italian. I talk with my hands because of her. Um, and I, when I was 30, I said, Oh, I want to go back to see where I was born. Cause you know, I grew up where I don't look like anyone. I have no blood relatives. I was always the brown kid in the sea of, you know, white kids, which is okay. It happens. Um, but I never knew where I was born. Like having that connection of, Oh, I was born at this hospital at this day, at this time, like, I don't know that. And a lot of us don't know that. So I think for a lot of adopted kids who are closed adoptions or um, international adoptions, we don't have that connection. So it's big for us when it went and if, especially for females, we'd go back and see it. So when I was 30 or just before I was 28, I started doing some digging on, on the Facebooks and I found a group for my orphanage where um, it talks about the orphanage, but it said orphanage. And I was like, orphanage. What? I thought, what? I'm so confused. And then my mom was like, I think she'd gotten injured. Um, she fell down some stairs and I was going through all her stuff at home. And I found this pamphlet of paperwork that said, you know, janaki which is my Indian name. And so I opened it and I find all my paperwork that says I was abandoned. Whoa. And I was, and I'm just like, and that's, when, and that was when I was like, not writing the book yet, but I still had it in the horizon. And I was just sat there staring at it. Like, no. And then so I I took it. I didn't tell my mom. I took it. And um I like a year later when I was planning the trip and she was very anxious about it. You know, as much as her and I don't have a super tight connection, she's my mom and she brought me here and she gave me the life that's much better than what I would have had. But she tried to protect me and I said to her, I go, Mom, am I an orphan? And she's like, Yes. And I was like, How come you never told me that? And she was protecting me. She didn't and I said, Mom, I'm twenty nine. i am 29 I've probably can handle it now. Like I get when I was a kid, like, you don't want to tell me. Um, so I ended up going back to the orphanage and I'd seen pictures of it on the Facebook group. And I'd re- done a lot of research about going back and going with a group. Wow. And I met some amazing, I have like some amazing friends. I'm um, actually the second book I'm working on writing. I've been interviewing people from that orphanage because they all have very similar stories um, to me.
0: Yeah. So I'm
1: trying to take all their stories and put them in like a book now. Um, cause we all have very different, um, It's it's similar because a lot of us work in like public safety fields, which is interesting. We all want to help and give back. Um, And some of us had great upbringing. Some of us have very big struggles with mental illness and abandonment. Um, So right now I'm compiling all of that. And then this, so this tattoo is the gate outside my orphanage. It's what it looks like when, before it got shut down. Um, The top is the baby passport that I found in my mom's paperwork. So I took the baby passport. And then underneath it, a lot, of, a lot of people think it's my birthday. And I'm like, no, guys, that'd be stupid. Um, it's the the stamp of when I came into JFK. So it's the passport stamp underneath it of, of when I came into the U.S. Wow. So that's what that one is. So it's kind of cool. I won't go back for a while. But uh, the yeah. orphanage was – it was very crazy to see, like, I was born in a jungle. So I, I joke on my softball team when, when we're playing with the guys down in, down here. I'll say, guys, I was born in a jungle with some monkeys. And they just look at me, and I'm like, but I'm dead serious. So I was like literally born in a jungle with monkeys on a river. Um, so it was interesting to see like where I supposedly was born and you know, things yeah. that I never thought of. Like my birth date was assigned to me, but I never ever looked at my birthday that way until one of the orphans I was with. She's like, I hate my birthday because we don't know if it's my real birthday. And I'm like, I never thought of that. And I, I don't hate my birthday, but I never thought of it that way. And I felt bad that that's how she viewed her birthday. Um, but yeah, that's the orphanage. That's only one tattoo, but that's the orphanage one.
0: No, but I, I love the symbolism and uh is, is that gonna be on the cover of the book?
1: On um, the yeah, I don't know how that so this cover of this book was a um oh, it took me it took me a while. I actually did this with my high school friend and my other my gym friend. We couldn't figure we wanted it to be about the tattoos, but we knew there were so many themes. You know, yeah, you the sexual yeah. assault, the abuse, the adoption um the abandonment, like all these these themes and then I was like, well go through the tattoos. So we gotta put the tattoos on. And then we talked about, well, it's an autobiography and we did all this research on, you know, I don't have money. I'm not I, this money gets donated for this book. I don't I don't keep it. Um but we went with the half mask because it was, you know, everyone always had this opinion of MJ, you're you know, perfect and you were raised great. And I'm like, oh no. Um, so it was the half mask with the tattoos on it to say like people, everyone has a mask on and that's okay. You know, some people you you have to have it on, but knowing that it's okay to take it off and talk about your life is, is my message, you know, and being vulnerable took me years and I'm still, there are still certain things that my mom doesn't know about the book.
0: She, yeah. wants to see yeah, this. Yeah. No, she wants to see this. She see this. I, I sent that, that when I was reading it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there are things that I kept out of the book, and there were there are considerations yeah. for the people I talked about as you read. Um yeah, but yeah, the, the cover was just my friends and I be like, well, this, this works. It. We'll go with this.
0: <laughs> I love it. Love it, love it, love it. We've spent uh 50 minutes with uh just a beautiful person, MJ, and uh Again, she is the author of Gracie Rising. It's a very, very powerful book on healing through life and through adversity and through struggle. Uh, I recommend it highly. I've, I've read it. My wife has read it. Um, uh, the, the gentleman, Sam Royer, that's responsible for introducing us. I am so grateful to him for the introduction. And go to Amazon today. Buy this book. And uh, if you know anybody that is having struggles with depression and mental illness, um, you know, maybe consider the book for them as a gift, maybe a roadmap to begin their healing. And um, and I think my message is to just understand that life is hard, and um, how we handle adversity is a really important life skill. And to know that on the other side of of challenge is is victory. Uh, i think is probably the big message that that i would like to to share don't give up in the midst of a struggle um, get strong by going through and growing through the struggle and i think you're going to heal just like i know i've healed and mJ it sounds like you're you're healing and all of us need to heal from whatever wounds we have um, from from yesterday all the way back and it's a really powerful place to be when you heal so i think our paths are going to cross again very soon and i'm uh, very encouraged by you know not only your service to our country but um, the message and the story that you have, and I know it took a lot to write that and to be transparent and uh, to put onto paper things that were really, really m- uh, major things. And uh, I think as a result of your book, people are, are healing. And at least that's my hope and prayer. So I loved hanging out with you. Do you have any final messages to anybody that you'd like to say as we wrap up?
1: No, I'm, I mean, the main thing is just don't be afraid to be yourself and, and dig deep. You guys will figure it out. Just be good.
0: Just be good people. I love that. One of the highlights of my notes, be good, be good to people. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining where success happens. And this is definitely a success story on the outside and, uh, and boundary of struggle. And, um, I think all of us, we're going to go through struggles and we're going to grow through struggles and we're going to be stronger because we do that. And, um, you know, the way we attack problems in life is actually the way we end up living life better. And I think that's the goal that we all have. So uh, join us again for our next podcast. And once again, MJ, thank you so much for adding so much value to thousands of people. I really enjoyed getting to know you and see you. And uh, can't wait for our paths to cross again. Thanks, Todd.